I'd like to propose a toast. Here's to the ladies who lunch. Everybody laugh. Lounging in their caftans and planning a brunch on their own behalf. Off to the gym, then to a fitting, claiming their fat. Cause they've been sitting, choosing a hat. Does anyone still wear a hat? I'll drink to that. Here's to the girls who stay smart, aren't they again? Rushing to their classes in optical art, wishing it would pass. Another long, exhausting day, another thousand dollars, a matinee, a pinter play, perhaps a piece of Mahler's. I'll drink to Here's to the girls who play wife, aren't they too much? Keeping house but clutching a copy of life, just to keep in touch. The ones who follow the rules and meet themselves at the schools. Too busy to know that they're fools. Aren't they a gem? I'll drink to them. Let's all drink to them. And here's to the girls who just watch. Aren't they the best? When they get depressed, it's a bottle of scotch plus a little jest. Another chance to disapprove another brilliant singer. Another reason not to move another vodka stinger. So here's to the girls on the go. Everybody tries. Look into their eyes and you'll see what they know. Everybody dies. A toast of that invincible bunch. The dinosaur surviving the crunch. Let's hear it for the ladies who lunch. Everybody rise.
Elaine Stritch there singing her signature song, The Ladies Who Lunch, from Stephen Sondheim's Company, taken from the 1970 original cast recording. A very good evening from me, Adrian Fuchs, and a warm welcome to Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM and to tonight's edition of Great Interpreters Goes Broadway, the third episode in a series of eight programs celebrating the greatest divas of the musical theatre stage. In the first episode of the series, we took a closer look at perhaps the most iconic of Broadway leading ladies, the mighty Ethel Merman, who, with her megaphone voice, was and perhaps always will be remembered by many as the voice of Broadway. In episode two, we travelled to Never Never Land, to the South Pacific and to the hills of Austria on the voice of a very different but equally celebrated Broadway performer, Mary Martin. Where Merman was brash with an outsized personality, Martin won her audiences over with her radiant voice and uniquely lovable persona. Librettist and lyricist Stephen Cole, a personal friend of both Merman and Martin, once noted, If Merman was the fire, blazing and present and sharp and funny, Martin was the smoke, elusive and warm and floating, like her voice. If you missed either program on Ethel Merman or Mary Martin, you can listen to them on my website on and off the record, www on and off the record.com that website again www on and off the record.com you can also download a podcast of the show from iTunes and if you have any feedback or comments on tonight's program you can contact me via email at adrian at on and off the record.com or via the Facebook on and off the record group page in tonight's program, we pay tribute to Broadway's brassiest broad, Elaine Stritch. With her gravel-edged belt, a voice like a car shifting gears without the clutch, as People magazine noted in 1988, her charismatic stage presence, tart-tongued quips, and her signature outfit, a long white man's dress shirt, a black vest, black tights, and nothing resembling pants, Stritch or Stritchy, as Noel Coward referred to her, became a living emblem of show business durability. Her career, which began in the 1940s, spanned almost 70 years and notably included roles in Noel Coward's Sail Away and Stephen Sondheim's Company, but reached its high point in 2001 when, in her late 70s, Stritch delivered a Tony Award-winning performance in her one-woman show Elaine Stritch at Liberty. Equal parts blonde bombshell and battle axe, Adam Feltman noted, Stritch sings in a skeleton key that somehow unlocks every song. Her curmudgeonly, whiskey-drenched style explodes with a rare force of character, a tough yet tender blend of honesty, rue and mordant wit. She was, as NPR Scott Simon observed, her own greatest character. Elaine Stritch was born in Detroit, on February 2, 1925, the youngest of three daughters born to George and Mildred Stritch. Even as a young child, Stritch knew that she wanted a career in show business, and she would later recall how at the age of four, her father took her to see a touring production of the Ziegfeld Follies. They went backstage to meet the star of the show, the comedian Bobby Clark, a friend of her father's, and Stritch later recalled how... 
From that moment on, I was hooked. She was popular and seemingly carefree at school, but struggled, Stritch said, to overcome a deep-seated lack of confidence. By high school, she had discovered that liquor helped mask her fears. Here is Elaine Stritch in an interview with Alec Baldwin, recorded for WNYC New York Public Radio in 2013. When did performing begin for you? As a were you a performer as a child? I was laughing. I was born laughing. And you were I, funny. Oh, God, I was funny. I really was funny. And I made everybody laugh. Yeah. And I wasn't conscious of it. Right. I want to tell you something. I'd love to tell you a line from my life to see if you get this. Sure. And I'm going to tell it to you. Go ahead. My mother and dad, as a present to me when I was six years old, took me to Niagara Falls, which was very close to Birmingham, Michigan. And I kept hearing about this, and I was going to wear my new pink coat and hat, and I was going to Niagara Falls, and I kept hearing it, and, you know, Christmas morning, Christmas morning, whatever it was, and it and I never said a word. I just sat in the back seat, and I just waited. They pulled up Alec to the parking lot in Niagara Falls, and here we are. We're here, Laney. We're here. Come on. Get out. And it was just me, Mom, and Dad. So the two sisters, the older sisters, you know, the hell with them. And I got very teary-eyed and pulled my mother back from the car and said, Mama, what, what? We're going to go see Niagara Falls. And I asked her if Niagara Falls had a baby. And to me and to my mother and my father, it was one of the most extraordinary dramatic lines of all time. All I was interested in is, did this woman, Niagara Falls, have a baby? Because then I could play with her. And it was, I think, an absolute proof of how lonely and sad I was as a kid. Wow. I didn't know what the hell artistic was all about. I really didn't. I knew I had to express myself. I knew I had to express myself, and that's all there was to it. After graduation, Stritch told her parents she wanted to go to New York to become an actress. They agreed, but on the condition that she live in a Manhattan convent. In 1944, she packed her bags and boarded the train to New York, moved into her convent room on Manhattan's east side, and enrolled at the New School for Social Research in Greenwich Village, where she studied acting with Erwin Piscator, along with an illustrious set of classmates that included Marlon Brando, B. Arthur, and Walter Matthau. In 1944, Stritch made her stage debut in an unsuccessful revival of On Your Toes. Her Broadway debut came in 1946 in the play Loco, directed by Jed Harris, and she is said to have sung for the first time on stage in the Long Island Review, The Shape of Things, in June 1947. 
A few months later, she appeared on Broadway in Angel in the Wings, another review in which she performed comedy sketches and sang Civilization, a satirical number expressing an African's thoughts about frightful aspects of modern life, including the lament, Bongo, 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 I don't want to leave the Congo. Here is Civilization from Angel in the Wings, as sung by Stritch and recorded in 2002 as part of her one-woman show, Elaine Stritch at Liberty. I got the song, we got to Philadelphia, and they didn't cut it. I sang it eight times a week for over a year and a half. This is the original choreography. Each morning a missionary advertised with neon sign. He delineated a population that civilization is fine. And three educated savages to holler from a bamboo tree. That civilization is the thing for me to see. Bongo, 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 I don't want to leave the Congo. Oh, no, 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 no. Bingo, bango, bongo, I saw hopping in the jungle. I refuse to go. Don't want no bright lights, folks, the doorbells, landlords. I make it clear. Nah, no matter how they cook, speak, I stay right here. They hurry like savages to get aboard an iron train. Though it's smoky and it's crowded, they are too civilized to complain. When they get two weeks vacation, they hurry to vacation ground. They swim and they fish, but that's what I do all year round. Bongo, 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 I don't wanna leave the Congo. Oh, no, 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 no. Ba, 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 bingo, bango, bongo, I so happy. The jungle I refuse to go. Don't want no high heels, butt pack, haircut, nail paint, padded brassiere. I got my spear, so no matter how they cook me, I'm going to stay right here. They have something called the nuclear bomb, so I think I stay where I am. Civilization, I stay right here. I know. In a relatively short period of time, Stritch established herself as a promising actress who could also hurl a song lyric to the far reaches of the balcony. In 1950, she won the job of understudy to Ethel Merman in Irving Berlin's Call Me Madam. Merman, with her legendary good health, never missed one of the 664 performances of Call Me Madam, and Stritch never got to perform the role on Broadway. But, while still understudying for Merman, Stritch landed the role of Melba Snyder in a revival of Pal Joey, the Rogers and Hart John O'Hara musical in which she played a shrewd, ambitious reporter recalling in the song Zip an interview with striptease artist Gypsy Rose Lee. Stritch's performance won rave reviews, and at the time, the production became the longest-running revival of a musical in the history of Broadway. Here is Stritch in an extract again from Elaine Stritch at Liberty. Ethel Merman, 
I got an opportunity to audition for the standby to Ethel Merman in Irving Berlin's new musical, Call Me Madam. It was to play the part of Pearl Mester, America's uh, ambassador to Lichtenburg. I was 20, I looked 40, I got the job. <laughs> Ethel Merman's never off, so I'm never on. For Ethel Merman, are you kidding? Please. Word is out along the Rialto. Word is out on Broadway that Julie Stein and Richard Rodgers are co-producing a revival of Rodgers and Hart's brilliant musical, Pal Joey. And it's opening cold in New York City at the Broadhurst Theater. No out-of-town tryout. I went along and I got an audition for Melba, the newspaper reporter who interviews Pal Joey. And Pal Joey, brat that he is, insults her. And she, in turn, sings a song called Zip by way of letting him know that she has fried fatter fish than he, including the famous striptease artist of the day, Miss Gypsy Rose Lee, whose gimmick it was to present herself as a stripper, yes. But Gypsy Rose Lee presented herself as a highly intellectual, respectable, piss-elegant stripper into the bargain. It was a great part. I read for it, and I got it, and then it hit me. I can't do this. I've got a contract for Leland Hayward standing by for Ethel Merman. Hold it. Wait a minute. Mr. Hayward, I got a part in Pal Joey. Yes, uh, I, I, it opens cold in New York at the, at the Broadhurst Theater. There's no out-of-town tryout. So, Mr. Hayward, if Ethel Merman is off at the Imperial Theater, and that'll be the day, right? Then, and call me madam, then I'd have to be on and call me madam at the Imperial Theater. But if Ethel Merman is on and call me madam at the Imperial Theater, then I could be on in Pal Joey at the Broadhurst Theater. Yes? He said yes. Mr. Stein? Pal Joey opens cold in New York, right at the Broadhurst Theater. There's no out-of-town tryout. Well, as you know, I've got a, I've got a job uh, standing by. I've got a contract with Lee and Harry standing by for Ethel Merman and call me madam. But, uh, Mr. Stein, if, uh, if Ethel Merman is off, and that'll be the day, right? <laughs> Imperial Theater. Then, of course, I'd have to be on at the Imperial Theater and call me madam. But if Ethel Merman is on and call me madam at the Imperial Theater, then I could be on in Pal Joey at the Broadhurst Theater. Right? Right! He said, okay. All right, now here we go. The first run through a pal Joey in New York City. Richard Rogers and Julie Stein are not pleased. Company, we need a week in New Haven. Shit. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I used to date a guy at Yale University in New Haven with an MG. And I called him up. I called him up. I called him up and I told him I missed him. And I asked him... I asked him how long it would take to drive from the Imperial Theater in New York to the Schubert Theater in New Haven. Oh, my God. I think this is going to work. You see, I don't sing Zip in Pal Joey until the second act. So I figured if I check with Ethel Merman at half hour, 7.30, at the Imperial Theater in New York, I could be at the Schubert Theater in New Haven by 10 o'clock. Right? Right. So... Here's the deal. The Imperial Theater, New York City. Half hour, 7.30. Check with Merman. I'm okay, Elaine. All right, so I'm out of there. I'm out of there, and I'm off to New Haven in the MG with the ex-boyfriend from Yale. We arrive at New Haven, 9.45, give or take, and I'm out of the MG and onto the stage of the Schubert Theater a few minutes after 10, singing Zip. It's perfect. 
the blizzard of 52. <laughs> At its peak, opening night of Pal Joe in New Haven. But I'm not in New Haven. I'm in New York, and I'm checking with Merman. And it is snowing. The MG, out of the question. Miss Merman, on account of the blizzard, I have to take the train to New Haven. So, Miss Merman, would it be okay if I, uh, the train pulls out at uh, 7 p.m. from Penn Station? So, would it be okay if I check with you just a little bit earlier than 7.30? And in that way, you see, I could be, oh, Elaine, will you, for Christ's sake, go to New Haven and sing the fucking song? <laughs> I'm on the train at 7 p.m. The train pulls out at 8 p.m. Never mind. I order a double brandy, and I start the first decade of my rosary. And that old train, that old train pulls into New Haven, and it's what? It's 12 minutes after 10. So that's it for me. That's it. I've had it. I've had it. I sing Zip at 10.15 in Pal Joey, and it's 12 minutes after 10. And the line at the cab stand, forget, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold it. I see a private car just about to pull away. Mom and dad in the front seat and four kids in the back. Would you roll your window? Would you roll, roll your window down? Yeah, thank you. I've got to go to the Schubert Theater. I really have to go to the Schubert Theater. And you're going to take me! <laughs> they took me. They took me. I'm in the back seat with the four kids, and I'm making conversation. Uh, how many in your family? Eight. Six in the car, and it turns out her mother and father live with them. What's your name? Giordano. It figures. Look, there will be, there'll be eight tickets at the box office of the Schubert Theater tomorrow night for pal Joey. <sighs> Schubert Theater. I'm out of the car, and I'm through the stage door and up the stairs to upstage left, where I was supposed to have had made my entrance... And as God is my judge, see, it must have been snowing on everybody. As God is my judge, Helen Gallagher is singing the last two lines of her song, which just happens to be my cue to enter. My understudy is standing there, ready to go on in my costume. I've got on a Dior suit and a beaver fur coat and boots. I throw off the coat and I kick off the boots and I say to my understudy with quiet, frenzied desperation, give me your shoes. <laughs> you give me your shoes. I wore a seven, she wore a nine and a half. <laughs> Minnie Mouse in a Dior suit. I made my entrance. I've interviewed Pablo Picasso and a countess named DeFrosso. I've interviewed the great Stravinsky. But my greatest achievement was the interview I had with a star who worked for Minsky. I met her at the Yankee Clipper and she didn't unzip one zipper. I said, Miss Lee, you are such an artist. Tell me why you never miss. What do you think of while you work? And she said, while I work, my thoughts go something 
Hartford Railroad, 1205, train to New York City. Day two, Tuesday, half hour, 7.30. Check with Merman. Drive to New Haven. It stops snowing. Arrive Schubert Theater, 10 o'clock, 10.15. Zip. I consider Dolly's paintings passe. The Dior suit stayed in. Zip. Will they make the mat? Metropolitan pay. I wore my own shoes. Zip. English people don't say clerk, they say Clark. Eight Giordano's in the third row. Zip. Anybody who says Clark is a jerk. Schubert Theater, New Haven, Merritt Parkway, New York. Day three, Wednesday, matinee day. Imperial Theater, half hour, two o'clock, first show, check with Merman, Merritt Parkway, New Haven, Schubert Theater, I adore the great Confucius, and the lines of Luscious Lucius, zip, I am so eclectic, Schubert Theater, New Haven, Merritt Parkway, New York, second show, half hour, 7.30, check with Merman, Merritt Parkway, New Haven, Schubert Theater, I don't care for either Mickey, Mouse Rooney makes me sicky. Zip. I'm a little hectic. Schubert Theater, New Haven, Merritt Parkway, New York. Day four and five. Thursday and Friday. Cool by comparison. Day six. Saturday. Another matinee day. Merman Merritt, New Haven, Schubert. Schubert, New Haven, Merritt, New York. Merman Merritt, New Haven, Schubert. Schubert, New Haven, Merritt, New York. And you wonder why I drank. Zip. Because of her success in Pal Joey, and because Ethel Merman preferred not to tour, 
Stretch was offered the lead in the 1952-53 National Tour of Call Me Madam. After this, she appeared again on Broadway in the 1954 revival of the Rogers Hart musical On Your Toes. Let's listen now to You Took Advantage of Me from On Your Toes, with music by Richard Rogers and lyrics by Lawrence Hart. This recording dates from 1954 and is taken from the revival cast recording of the show. In the spring when the feeling was chronic And my caution was leaving me flat I should have made use of a tonic Before you gave me that A mental deficient you grade me I've given you plenty of data You came, you saw, you slayed me and that is that I'm a sentimental sap, that's all What's the use of trying not to fall? I have no will, you made your kill Cause you took advantage of me I'm just like an apple and you're gonna shake me down somehow So what's the use? You've cooked my goose Cause you took advantage of me I'm so hot and bothered That I don't know My elbow from my ear I suffer something awful Each time you go much worse when you're near Here am I with all my bridges burned Just a babe in arms where you're concerned So lock the doors and call me yours Cause you took advantage of me Thank you. 
On Your Toes was followed in 1958 with the role of Maggie Harris in Goldilocks, a parody of the silent film era that featured a book by Jean and Walter Kerr and music by Leroy Anderson. Unfortunately, even Stritch's acclaimed clowning was not enough to make Goldilocks a hit, though her performance lives on in the cast recording of the show and in particular the song Who's Been Sitting in My Chair, in which Maggie bemoans the fact that she is unmarried and still living the single life. When Goldilocks went visiting the bears, they came home from the forest unawares. Found cushions off the chairs, porridge everywhere, and bedlam in the bedroom when they hurried up the stairs. When I come home, I look around and sigh. Everything is neat as apple pie. A charming little nest. It gets me so depressed, I want to die. No, why? Who's been sitting in my chair? Just me, just me. Seems such a pity when I'd share it willingly. I want a den that is happy, homey. I've got a yen for a lap below me. If you were sitting in my chair, oh gosh, oh gee. Who's been eating my porridge? Just me, that's who. I'm just the type to go foraging for a midnight snack or two. When you don't see a soul with your morning coffee, you can't casserole and you can't pull toffee if you were eating my porridge. Oh dear, oh dear. Hi ho and lack a day, a lack of love will turn me gray. I'd like to run away just like Goldilocks. Been sleeping in my bed, just me, just moi. I'd like a two fisted biped for my boudoir. I'd like a tweed hanging next to that dress. I'd like to need a larger mattress if you were sleeping in my bed. Tra-la, 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 tra-la. Elaine Stritch there singing Who's Been Sitting in My Chair from Goldilocks with music by Leroy Anderson and book and lyrics by Jean and Walter Kerr. In 1961, Noel Coward cast Stritch as Mimi Paragon, a brash, bold American divorcee working as an effervescent hostess on a British cruise ship in the musical comedy Sail Away. Here is Stritch in an extract from Elaine Stritch at Liberty, recorded in 2002. Okay, I'm home from Rome, and I'll be damned if I didn't get lucky again, and with Robert Whitehead again. Elegant, classy, dishy Robert Whitehead. Great producer on Broadway, and he finally decided to produce his first musical. 
name of the musical was Goldilocks. He also decided to give me the lead. Well, I was so excited. But you know, you never know. You know, you never know. It's a crapshoot. I mean, look, Robert Whitehead, producer. Walter and Jean Kerr wrote the book. Leroy Anderson did the score. And, and, and Agnes DeMille, the choreography. God, you'd think, wouldn't you? They just couldn't get it right. And one of the nights we couldn't get it right in Philadelphia, Noel Coward came to see the show. And at 11.30, he was at my dressing room door. Stretcher! Your attempt to keep it light, keep it gay, keep it fragrant, impossible, I'm afraid. The book is not very good, the score is not very good, the uh, direction is not very good, the choreography is not very good. The leading lady is quite good indeed, and she is alone in her dressing room in tears, having a very, very, very large scotch. <laughs> take heart, Stritchy. Any leading lady who doesn't do a double take when a nine-foot bear asks her to dance is my kind of actress. <laughs> Six to eight months later on the set of a TV sitcom, I was lucky enough to land in L.A. The AD informed me one morning I had an overseas phone call from Les Avants, Switzerland. Stretcher! I've written a musical for New York in the fall. The musical is called Sail Away. There's a part in it for you. It is not the lead. But it is a very, 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 very good part. Oh, my God, Mr. Coward! What if I'm not free? What if they pick up this sitcom in the fall? Stritcher, I have seen the sitcom. <laughs> they will not pick it up in the fall. Sail Away went into rehearsal in the morning of July 2nd, 1961, and the night before... Noel Coward did something that I know now, and he knew then, of course, would give me the courage and confidence I needed. It was very simple what he did. He took me out to dinner, to the posh Barbary room in the Berkshire Hotel. Champagne flowed, and before you knew it, I'm singing duets with the Noel Coward, accompanied by the Forrest Perrin, in the posh Barbary room of the Berkshire Hotel till 3 o'clock in the morning. In Noel Coward's script, Sail Away, the leading lady gets the guy in the end, naturally. And my part, the world-weary cruise hostess, Mimi Paragon, she gets the laughs. However, exactly two weeks before Sail Away went into New York from Philadelphia, Noel Coward, together with the choreographer, the brilliant choreographer, Joe Layton, together they opted to combine the two parts, making it necessary, unfortunately, to sack the leading lady. <laughs> well, that's show business. <laughs> so now my part, Mimi Paragon, ends up with the laughs, but I also got the guy in the end, and I got the 11 o'clock number. Opening night of Sail Away on Broadway in New York. Noel Coward came to my dressing room. Stretcher, Alfred and Linney want us for the weekend in the Berkshires. 
I thought to myself, my God, not only is this kid from Michigan about to open any minute in a Noel Coward musical on Broadway, she's just been invited by Noel Coward, the Noel Coward, to weekend in the country with the Lunts. <laughs> Another thought suddenly grabbed me. Mr. Coward, if I don't get good notices tomorrow, can I still go to the Lunts? <laughs> no. Stritch repaid Coward's trust in her, not only by giving what Howard Taubman of the New York Times said must be the performance of her career, but also by successfully ad-libbing on opening night when a poodle in the cast betrayed its training on stage. According to the show's director, Joe Layton, every time Stritch went on stage, she caused a sensation. Here she is singing... Why Do the Wrong People Travel from the 1961 original Broadway cast recording of Sail Away. Travel, they say, improves the mind An irritating platitude Which, frankly, entre Is very far from true Personally, I've yet to find that longitude and latitude can educate those scores of monumental bores who travel in groups and herds and troops of various breeds and sexes till the whole world reels to shouts and squeals and the clicking of roly flexes. Why do the wrong thing? People travel, travel, travel When the right people stay back home What compulsion compels them And uh, who the hell tells them To drag their clans to Zanzibar Instead of staying quietly in Omaha The Taj Mahal and the Grand Canal And the sunny French Riviera Less oppressed if the Middle West would settle for somewhere rather nearer. Please do not think that I criticize or cavil at a genuine urge to roam. But why, oh, why do the wrong people travel when the right people stay back home? Mind their business when the right people stay back home with Cinerama. When the right people stay back home, I'm merely asking why the right people stay back home. Just when you think romance is right. It rather sharply dawns on you that each sweet serenade is for the tourist trade. Any attractive native type who resolutely fawns on you will give as his address American Express. There isn't a rock between Bangkok and the beaches of Hispaniola that does not recoil from suntan oil and the gurgle of Coca-Cola. Why do the wrong people travel, travel, travel When the right people stay back home? What 
explains this mass mania to leave Pennsylvania and clack around like flocks of geese demanding dry martinis on the isles of Greece in the smallest street where the gourmets meet they invariably fetch up and it's hard to make them accept a steak that isn't served rare and smeared with ketchup millions of tourists are churning up the gravel while they gaze at St. Peter's dome but why oh why do the wrong people travel when the right people stay back home and eat hot donuts when the right people stay back home with all those benefits when the right people stay back home i sometimes wonder why the right people stay back home what peculiar obsession Houston, Texas, with all those cameras around their necks, they will take a train or an aeroplane for an hour on the Costa Brava, and they'll see Pompeii on the only day when it's up to its molten lava. It would take years to unravel, ravel, ravel every impulse that makes them wrong. But what? Stay back home with all that Kleenex when the right people stay back home with Dr. Brothers when the right people stay back home with all those Kennedys when the right people stay back home. Won't someone tell me by the right? I said the right. Let's listen to another extract from Elaine Stritch at Liberty, recorded in 2002. One matinee day in Philadelphia. Oh, it was a few weeks before Sail Away went into New York, and I was in my dressing room. Door was open. It always was. Always is. It's lonely back there. And I remember I was just about to take my makeup off. Thank God I didn't. I looked up, and Richard Burton walked in. He must have seen the matinee, because he was in Philadelphia. He was getting ready to open in, in Camelot. And I looked at Richard Burton, and I thought, hmm. No. No. 
No, but I did think he might be... He might be going to ask me out to dinner between shows, like they say. Well, that didn't happen. Um, Elaine Stritch, he said, I have seen you many times out and about in New York City, and I have to confess, I have never once turned my head. <laughs> but halfway through your last number this afternoon, I almost had an orgasm. And then he kissed me on both cheeks and he walked out. <laughs> and I sat down at my dressing table and I looked in the mirror. And I started to cry. Richard Burton got me to thinking. Yeah, it seems, um, it seems that I'm just a cat's meow in every way. From the time they call half hour till the curtain rings down. But just... Oh, I don't know, taking Elaine out to supper after the show, maybe, or to a movie. Something like that. That wasn't happening. So much. Anymore. Oh, listen, give me the uh, co costumes, the scenery, the makeup, the props, you know, the audience that lifts you. According to Richard Burton, I could seduce a whole audience and never have to go to confession. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And then I thought, I thought maybe, maybe this is the ball game, you know? Yeah, I thought maybe this is the way it was going to be. I thought maybe for me, this is it. Just a void and empty space When you are not in my embrace Oh, there's a love in my life The moment that you go There is no night, there is no day The clock stops ticking The world stops 
stops turning Everything stops But the flame in my heart That keeps burning Burning Oh, oh, oh There's a love in my life No matter how I may pretend I know that you alone can end The ache in my heart The call of my arms The There's a Lull in My Life, sung by Elaine Stritch, with music by Harry Revel and lyrics by Mac Gordon. In 1962, Stritch repeated her success in Sail Away in London's West End. She returned to the U.S. to star as Vera Charles in a U.S. tour of MAME and appeared in a television version of the legendary review Pins and Needles. Unlike most performers, Stritch loathes talking about her acting method, I find it impossible, she once noted. I don't know what the hell I'm doing up there half of the time. These performers that go on about their technique and craft. Oh, please, how boring. I don't know what technique means, but I do know what experience is. I know in my gut when I've done a scene right. Here is a short extract from Act 1 of Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? featuring the first replacement cast of the 1963 Broadway production, with Stretch as Martha, Ray McAnally as George, Pinky Johnston as Honey, and Blaine Thurman as Nick in this radio recording. Why don't you um, come over here with me and sit? What? I, uh, I don't think I well, should. Shoot yourself. A sense of continuation. History. And he'd always had it in the back of his mind to groom someone to take over sometime when he quit. A succession. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. Which is natural enough when you made something, you want to pass it on to somebody. So I was sort of on the lookout for prospects with the new men. An heir apparent. I mean, it wasn't Daddy's idea that I had to necessarily marry the guy. I mean, I wasn't the albatross. You didn't have to take me to get the prize or anything like that. <laughs> It was something I had in the back of my mind. And a lot of the new men were married, naturally. Sure. Like you, baby. Like you, baby. But then, George came along. Along came George. And along came George, bearing hooch. What are you doing now, Martha? I'm telling a story. Sit down, you'll learn something. All righty. You've come back. That's right. Dear, he's come back. Yes, I see, I see. Where was I? I'm so glad. Shh. Shh. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. And along came George, that's right, who was young, intelligent, and bushy-tailed, and sort of cute, if you can imagine it. And younger than you. And younger than me. By six years. By six years. It doesn't bother me, George. And along he came, bright-eyed, into the history department. And do you know what I did? Dumb cluck that I am. You know what I did? I fell for it. Oh, that's nice. Oh, yes, she did. I mean, you should have seen it. She used to sit outside of my room on the lawn at night, and she'd howl and claw at the turf. Oh, I couldn't work. I actually fell for him. It. That. There. Martha is romantic at heart. That I am. So I actually fell for him. And the match seemed practical, too. You know how Daddy was looking for somebody to uh, just a minute, Martha. take over sometime. Uh, just, just, just a minute, to... Martha. Retire? No, no, and so stop I thought, it, Martha. What, what, what do you want? Look, I thought you were telling the story of our courtship, Martha. I didn't know you were going to start in on this other business. Well, I am. Well, I wouldn't if I were you. Oh, you wouldn't? Well, you're not. Now, look, you've already sprung a leak about you-know-what. What? What? About the apple of our eye, the sprout, the little bugger. Our son. And if you start in on this other business, now, I warn you, Martha, it's going to make me angry. Oh, it is, is it? I warn you. You what? I warn you. You really think we have to go I stand what? warned. So anyway, I married the SOB, and I had it all planned out. He was the groom, and he was going to be groomed. He'd take over someday. First, he'd take over the history department, and then when Daddy retired, he'd take over the college. You know, that's the way it was supposed to be. Oh, You're getting angry, baby. Yes. Huh? Uh, that, that, that was the way it was supposed to be. It was very simple. And Daddy seemed to think it was a pretty good idea, too, for a while, until he watched for a couple of years. You getting angrier, baby, huh? Until he watched for a couple of years and started thinking maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all, that maybe Georgie boy here didn't have the stuff that he didn't have it in him. Stop it, Martha! The hell I will! You see, George didn't have much push. He wasn't particularly aggressive. In fact, he was sort of a, a flop. A great, a big, fat flop. I said stop, Martha. Hope that was an empty bottle, George. You don't want to waste good liquor. Not on your salary. Not on an associate professor's salary. I mean, he'd be no good at trustees' dinners, fundraising. He didn't have any personality. Do you know what I mean? Which was disappointing to Daddy, as you can imagine. So here I am, stuck. With this flop, don't go on, this bog in the history department, don't, who's married to the president's don't. daughter, who's expected I to be don't. somebody, not just some nobody, right. some bookworm, right. somebody who's so goddamn uh, contemplative, he can't make anything out of himself, somebody without the guts to make anybody proud of him. All right, George, who's afraid of I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be sick. I'm going to vomit. Oh, for God's sake, honey. Like everything in her life, Stritch was completely candid about her alcoholism. In 1968, Stritch told a reporter of the New York Times, I'm not a bit opposed to your mentioning in this article that Frida van Heer has had a reputation in the theater for the past five or six years for drinking. I was always trying to prove something about myself, she noted in an interview with the New York Times in 2013, and alcohol helped me get through that. Since her early years, Stritch had suffered from stage fright, and when prayers did not do the trick, she quelled her nerves with alcohol. By the late 1970s, her opening gambit at each new bar was reportedly, I'd like four martinis and a floor plan. 
In Elaine's stretch at liberty, she earned one of her biggest laughs with a story about a long night of drinking with a friend. The story was ostensibly about the friend, Judy Garland, but it was self-reflective too. Judy Garland, she said to me one night, it was her closing night at the palace, and there was a big party, a big celebration, and Judy Garland and I were still at it at 8 o'clock in the morning. When she rose to her full height in that orange sequin sheath with the slit up the side, her comeback dress, I called it. She loved that. And she put her hand out to me and she said, Elaine, I never thought I'd say this, but good night. <laughs> During the late 1980s, Stritch quit drinking. I had to quit drinking, she told People magazine in a 1988 interview. I couldn't stand the frustration of having to stop after two drinks. I find it easier to abstain than to do a little bit of anything. I'm not a little bit kind of dame. I want it all, whatever I do. I drank a lot and I had a ball. Let me tell you how much I loved booze. It's also an, an account, to a very frank account, of, of, of your drink problem that you had. When did you first start drinking? When I was... Um... 14, I think, 13, 14 years old. It's funny, I was hanging out in the tech room back there, and I was talking to the guys, and anything I tell you about him is not going to get him in trouble because everybody in the tech room is called Dave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, at the BBC on this show, everybody's Dave. What's your name? Dive. Dive. <laughs> My name's Dive. But anyway, <laughs> this fellow was, was smoking back there, and I, I said, oh, my God, you fool. You're not still doing that, are you? And he said, and I, he said, you, I said, I stopped 25 years ago. I smoke five packs of cigarettes a day. Gee. I don't do anything small, ever. <laughs> so what, I told him a story, and I'll tell you if I've got time or if you've got time. I, the morning I quit smoking, I was walking down 59th Street and in New York, and it was real tough, boy. And I suddenly had a big withdrawal thing, and I made up my mind to cross the street and go to the Ritz-Carlton and get a pack of cigarettes. I said, this is ridiculous to punish yourself like this. And so all of a sudden, I yell. I don't know where this came from, Michael, but I yelled, I don't smoke on 59th Street. And, you know, you do that in New York, nobody pays any attention. To <laughs> and there's a guy leaning up against the wall on the park side, and his fly's open and his shirt's coming out, you know. And I'm glad I said that. And he has a paper bag with a, you know what, in it. Yeah, and so I yell, I don't smoke! And this guy says, big deal! <laughs> so it gave me a laugh, enough to get me through the first day. So I say to Dive... I say to dive in the tech room. I said, so that got me through it. And he looked at me and he said, then another dive said to me, uh, do you drink? And I said, no, I don't. And he looked at me and he said, well, what do you do? <laughs> and I said, the Michael Parkinson show. <laughs> that shut everybody up. I knew in the 70s when you were drinking. I mean, it, did it affect... You were lucky, I guess. <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, neither do I. It was a problem, wasn't it? Sure it was. Sure it was. I, uh, I got through it, though, without making too many mistakes because I was, I was disciplined about my drinking. 
What was the moment, though, that, that stopped you, that you decided, when was it that you decided to... I decided to stop drinking a lot of reasons, physically, because it was not good for you. But the other reason is I decided that it was pretty stupid not to be able to do anything without a drink. I mean, that's admitting to yourself that you are in big trouble. I didn't uh, answer the door without a drink. I didn't pick up the phone without a drink. Uh, the opposite sex scared the hell out of me. You wouldn't know it by my track record, but they did. Boys, boys made me very nervous. As soon as I had a drink, I was Elizabeth Taylor. Instantly. Instantly, I was adorable. I said to somebody the other night, when I used to drink, every time I went to the ladies' room, I got better looking. <laughs> it's wonderful. But drink, drinking works. That's what's so dangerous about it. It works, boy. Oh, does it pack a wallop. And it's there when you need it. And then all of a sudden, it turns on you and does a number that, um, mm -mm -mm -mm, no when more. You, when, you're, when you're going through this period of drinking and thinking about why you're doing it, did you go to an analyst at all? No. Did you know? No. I think, I don't mean, to, I don't mean that in any way against analysts, but I... Have you been I, to analysts? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Did I, they work? I went to an analyst who looked exactly like Jack Kennedy. It was very difficult, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and he said, um, um, oh, and I had started out the session by telling him that sometimes I woke up in the morning and I felt like, I felt like um, I could crawl, not under the mattress, but in it. I was so scared. And then some mornings I, I woke up and I felt like I could be president of the United States. So at the end of the session, when I asked him, when, where's my report card, when will I be finished? He said, I don't know, I guess when you're nominated. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a good analyst, but um, I, I, I think it was that. It was self-awareness, realization of the fact that, and I couldn't find my real talent. I got away with murder. I got away with murder because I was talented. But it does a number on your talent. Too. And, and that, so you, 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 you're saying, in fact, that you discovered you only exploited your talent fully after you stopped drinking? Exactly. Yeah. And I wanted to do something <laughs> sure. without the help of that sure. damn, you know, and boy, do I love it. <laughs> oh, God. You mentioned a tankery martini to me, and I, I can almost enjoy it without having it. That's something. <laughs> Elaine Stritch there in an interview with Michael Parkinson, recorded for the BBC. Let's listen now to Stritch singing The Object of My Affection with music and lyrics by Pinky Tomlin. The object of my affection can change my complexion from white to rosy red. can thrill me and some who can fill me with dreams of happiness but I'll never rest until he tells me that he's mine now he's not the kind that'll leave me cause he's not the type to be unfair but instead I trust him implicitly He can go where he wants to go Do what he wants to do I don't care 
The object of my affection can change my complexion from white to rosy red. Anytime he holds my hand and tells me that he's mine, he's not the kind that'll leave me. Not the type to be unfair. Implicitly, he can go do. I don't care. The object of my affection can change my complexion from white to rosy red. Anytime he holds my hand and tells me that he's mine. Stritch's sobriety lasted some 25 years, and it was only during the last few years of her life that she started drinking again on a modest scale. I'm almost 89. I'm going to have a drink a day or two. I know how to handle it, so there, she told Dave Itzkoff in a 2014 interview for the New York Times magazine. Her alcoholism wasn't the only thing Elaine Stritch was candid about. She also spoke openly about her struggle with diabetes, And in her book, Am I Blue? Living with Diabetes and Dammit Having Fun, she wrote about being diagnosed with the disease in her 40s at the height of her Broadway career. More than with any other condition I know of, she wrote, the diabetic simply has to understand the nature of the illness and become intimately involved in treating it. But with her trademark wit, she also said, Diabetes is great because I can say, my blood sugar is off, I have to go. After a disastrous out-of-town tour in Time of the Barracudas with Lawrence Harvey in 1963, Stritch tended a bar for five months, and it wasn't until 1970 that she would appear on a Broadway stage again, this time as the cynical, acerbic Joanne in Stephen Sondheim's company. Her searing rendition of the vodka-soaked anthem The Ladies Who Lunch, which we heard at the beginning of this evening's program, stopped the show and provided Stretch not only a Tony nomination, but cult status. One reviewer notedly observed, Stretch can race through the gears from a savage purr to an air raid siren howl in five seconds without ever losing a note of the melody. The recording of the cast album of Company was documented in the 1970 film Original Cast Album Company, which is filled with behind-the-scenes footage of the recording process, complete with much of the musical direction from and insight of Stephen Sondheim himself. The film captured the recording of several of the show's numbers, including Another Hundred People, Getting Married Today and Being Alive, all recorded with a live orchestra in multiple takes over the course of several hours. In an agonizing sequence, the film documents Stritch's struggle to record a satisfactory version of The Ladies Who Lunch. Well past midnight, the film shows Stritch, Sondheim and the orchestra members 
all clearly suffering from the effects of the day's marathon recording session. And, as her voice and performance continue to degrade, some conflict is seen between Stritch, the producer Thomas Shepard, and Sondheim. Everyone agrees to call it a night, and to have Stritch come back the following afternoon after a matinee performance of the show to record the vocal over an orchestral track recorded later that evening. The next afternoon, a revitalized Stritch, still in makeup from the matinee, delivers a searing rendition of The Ladies Who Lunch in one take. Here is Stritch in an interview for Masterworks Broadway recorded in 2008, in which he talks about the song The Ladies Who Lunch and about recording the cast album of Company. It was down in the, in the Schubert, down in the lounge at the Schubert Theater, I think, when we had first read Company Out Loud. And all I thought of when I heard it is that's something, there's something special about that. And I never forget the first run-through we had in the rehearsal hall. Steve wrote me a note. Mm, I'm so proud of it. I loved getting it. It was so encouraging for me. He said, you have turned a, a saloon song into a piece of theater which was just extraordinary. He put, talked about putting himself down and putting me up, which was ridiculous. But anyway, I, I know what he means. But a good saloon song is good theater. <laughs> so I loved it. I didn't understand it. You know, when you're a young actress and you're hearing of something that you're going to be in, you don't care if you understand it. You don't even question yourself. It's just, Wow. This sounds terrific, really exciting, and it was something you don't explain. It just happens to you, and it happened to everybody. sounded great, because you can't sing the song without explaining it, and, and that's just what made me so crazy at the recording. Totally misunderstood I was, because the reason I wanted to go on last is so that I wouldn't have a lot of actors saying, oh, Elaine's going to take forever, and she's a perfectionist, and all this bullshit. And I didn't want people sitting around feeling that way about me. So that much I knew, but I shot myself in the foot, because by the time they got to me, I'm a hundred percenter. I gave a hundred percent to every single one of those songs that I was involved with in company. So by 11 o'clock at night, I was a wreck, vocally. You know, I had spent myself. You know, you do all the Bobby, 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 baby, Bobby, Bobby, and, and, and what would I do without you, and all that stuff, and it's the little things. You know, I had a lot of vocal stuff in company. So, as I said, that's a good way of explaining it. I did shoot myself in the foot. Eventually, it was terrific, because I was the reason that that documentary was such a big success. I'm convinced of that, because I turned it into a Cinderella story without knowing it. And the fact that I was yelling in the control, I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. And for me not to be able to get something is terrifying. It just it makes me sick. And then the thrill of getting it. And then I thought, oh, that's not as exciting. I should be singing with the orchestra and not on a track. doesn't make any difference. The music was there. And I had Hastings right there conducting me. And to look in that booth and see Stunheim go, that's it, was just such a thrill for me. Because, you know, I could have really blown that. Because if I hadn't done it right up there, you know, taxi, everybody had been out of there saying, oh, she's full of shit. And, oh, I know what could have happened. But it didn't happen that way. 
and it was on a matinee day too. So I had to go over to the theater and do two shows. Never mind, boy, knowing that I had that on the track. And I, I started to say one of the reasons that Steve, I think, liked me that day was because less is more. I was trying to make this song into, I don't know, Medea, and it wasn't right. The whole thing about this woman is throwaway, and, you know, but she's deeply affected by it, but she doesn't want any... It's a complicated thing, but I knew I did it right because I just did it. I just did it. And this is an example. Uh, this is when I was really had a hold of the number and I could do it. For some reason, don't ask me why, but one night I said, and here's to the girls who just watch. Aren't they the best? Because it was, they are really some sad. When they get depressed, it's a bottle of scotch, plus a little jest, plus a little jest. It's almost spoken, it's almost sung. And then there's places in Ladies Who Lunch where you have to sing, and you want to sing. The ones who follow the rules, and that's just like them. They're doing everything in the station wagon every day at the thing, you know, and that makes you sing. Aren't they a jam? Uh, let's all drink. There's, it dictates to you how, what, when to speak, and it's that kind of a song. The emotions get so big you have to say it. I don't know, I don't know why that makes sense to me, but it does. You'd think it'd be the other way around that you got so emotional you sang, but that isn't it. I don't know what it is. But analyzing can be very hurtful to talent, too. You know, actor studio, you know, take a walk because I don't want any of that in it. You know, it's got to come to me from in time. You know, in time it'll all, you'll understand it, you know. I was thrilled to death. I jumped up and down for hours. I couldn't get over the fact I got it. I got it right, and it didn't. It wasn't too hard. You see, that's laying back and letting it happen. So that's what it took to get me to do that song right. So I should be very grateful and am. But boy, to do an album of a musical, a hit musical, and you go to record it, because this is not what they're going to be seeing every night, and you're going to be just great, and the emotion's going to be there, and you've rested all day and all that bullshit. But this time, this is, the, this is the hearing it for the rest of its life. In 1972, Stritch reprised her role in the West End production of Company and remained in London after the show closed. Noel Coward told me I'd be appreciated there, she later recalled. He said America wasn't ready for me yet. I was due for a change anyway, what with all the muggings and crimes going on. What really convinced me to go was when I met Chita Rivera for lunch. She picked me up in a cab at the theatre where I was rehearsing Company. When she said to the driver, across the street and step on it, I knew it was time to get out. While in London, Stretch won a wide following in stagings of American plays and as co-star of the top-rated television comedy series Two's Company, in which he played a prickly American writer working at an English estate opposite Donald Sinden. It was also during her time in London that Stretch met the American actor John Bay during rehearsals for a production of Tennessee Williams's Small Craft Warnings. The two fell in love and married soon thereafter. Here is Stretch in an extract from Elaine Stretch at Liberty, recorded in 2002. 
at Her Majesty's Theatre in the West End of London. I did my last performance of company, and um, I was tired. I was seriously tired. I had been Bobby babied and Bobby boobied for 782 performances. I needed a holiday, so I took one. I went to Land's End. That's as far west as you can go in this country, they tell me, before your hat floats. And it occurred to me that it was the first time I had ever made my own travel plans. You know, no company manager with the tickets, no stage manager with the, with the call sheet, no company. There was nobody. <clears throat> it was just me. I was alone. And I started to do some thinking, some tall thinking. Where was I going? And more importantly, who, if anybody, was going with me? It turned out, back in London, I had two engagements waiting for me. One, a straight, legitimate play, and the other, a straight, legitimate fella I was about to meet in the straight, legitimate play. The play was Tennessee Williams' Small Craft Warnings, and the fella was John Bay. And after four and a half, closer to five weeks of rehearsal, in the gardens behind the Savoy Hotel, my residence at the time, at a rate you would not believe. <laughs> in front of the statue of Gilbert and Sullivan in the gardens there, overlooking the Thames, I proposed to John Bay. John was an incredible mimic. Yeah, he could move and sound exactly like just about anybody. And one of my favorites was Jack Benny. His answer to my proposal of marriage... Why not? Well, we pooled our rehearsal pay, and we crossed the strand, and we went to a little jewelry shop, and we bought two single gold wedding bands, and we opted to live at the Savoy. John said, Elaine, your rate's too good. You can't afford to move. And then he saw me home, and he went to collect his gear. His digs were in Kensington Gardens. And... Uh, I closed the door behind him, and I threw myself on the bed, and I shouted, yes! You know, like the kids do today. My joy was overpowering. I just didn't know what to do with it. Just think. He was coming back here, and he was going to stay with me, and he did. He came back. And he stayed with me. The word that applies to John is sweet, Stretch stated in a 1988 interview with People magazine. He was a sweet, gentle, wonderful man, and funny like you can't stand it. In 1982, Stretch and Bay returned to New York, buying a Victorian house on the Hudson River in Nyack that they restored together. It was John's decision to come back, he felt it was time, she later recalled, adding, I turned my back on a very successful career in London. Noel was right. They really loved me. Sadly, Bay died of a brain tumour later that same year. I really miss him, Stritch stated in 1988, but I was lucky to have him for the years that I did. Can I ask you about John Bay, your husband? Oh, can you ever? Of course you can. Well... The love of your life, I gather. Absolutely. No question about it. No question about it. I was in love for the first time in my life. 
he said something that you quote in this film. Yeah, what? Which I haven't stopped quoting. Everybody's got a sack of rocks. Got a sack of rocks. Well, it's the wisest thing I've ever heard said ever. Yeah. Oh, God, I can't say enough about that guy. Will explain he died too young. Oh, my God. Tell me about it. It was 10 years, though. It was I had 10 years with that man. We never fought. We screamed once in a while and then broke up. You know, now I don't mean broke up, but yeah. you know, broke up in laughter. We, we had a ball with our fights. <laughs> oh. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. Oh, stop it, John. This is a waste of time. I know, but you started it. No, I didn't. You brought that, those kind of arguments. Yeah. And then I just ask him to please kiss me like they do in the movies, and he'd tell me that's where I should go. <laughs> to, it's true. That's what he would. He'd say, just go to the movies, Elaine, and then you come back and we'll have dinner. Oh, he was a lovely guy, and he was funny, and he was he was my, oh, boy. He was my husband, and I love saying that because I'd never had one before. Yeah. I didn't know how to behave with one, but I knew how to behave with John. Elaine stretched there in an interview with Scott Simon from National Public Radio, recorded in 2014. In 1985, Stritch returned with great success to New York for the star-studded two-performance Follies in Concert at Lincoln Center. She played Hattie and very nearly stopped the show with her sensational rendering of Broadway Baby. Here is Stretch singing Broadway Baby with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and taken from Elaine Stretch at Liberty, recorded in 2002. I'm just a Broadway baby Walking off my tired feet Pounding 42nd Street To be in a show Oh Broadway, baby Learning how to sing and dance for that one big chance to be in a show Oh Gee I'd like to be on some marquee All twinkling lights A spark to pierce the dark from Battery Park to Washington Heights. Someday, maybe, all my dreams will be repaid. Heck, I'd even play the maid to be in a show. Hey, 
Hey, Mr. Producer. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. I was, I was talking to you, sir. I don't need a lot. Only what I got. Plus a tube of grease paint and a false spot. Broadway, baby. Making rounds all afternoon. And I'm eating at a greasy spoon. To save on my dog Oh ah. My tiny flat Just my cat A bed and a chair Still I'll stick it Till I'm on a bill In the mid-1980s, Woody Allen, dissatisfied with his film September, decided to reshoot it. Stritch accepted the part originally played by Maureen O'Sullivan while recuperating from surgery to have polyps removed from her vocal cords. She played the hard-drinking survivor of a roller coaster life, a former glamour girl whose daughter, played by Mia Farrow, is both angry and oppressed. Her performance initiated a productive period of movie work that included Cocoon, The Return in 1988, Cadillac Man with Robin Williams in 1990, Autumn in New York alongside Richard Gere and Winona Ryder in 2000, Small Time Crooks also in 2000, and Monster in Law with Jane Fonda and Jennifer Lopez in 2005. In 1994, Director Hal Prince cast Stritch as Parthy Hawks, the nagging wife of the showboat's Captain Andy in Prince's lavish revival of Showboat, during which Stritch gave a touching rendition of Why Do I Love You. Other noteworthy stage appearances include an acclaimed revival of Edward Albee's A Delicate Balance in 1996, in which Stritch portrayed Claire, and a production of Samuel Beckett's grim comedy about mortality, Endgame at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in 2008. Here is Stretch in an interview with Charles Osgood for CBS, recorded in 1996, at the time of her performance in A Delicate Balance. A Delicate Balance is a play of psychological terror. All of a sudden, one night, they get, start getting older, and they say, what, what's it all about, Alfie, if you will? What's going to happen? Do you love me, really? Do I love you? Can, can we stay for the rest of our lives? Are we going to die? Oh, God, all the fears that human beings have, and they've got no antidote. I've had that feeling, Charles. 
I've had that feeling. I guess everybody's had that you feeling. You bet. So you have to develop something in yourself that makes you not afraid. And in my book, it's, be, it's believing in something that's a hell of a lot smarter and more powerful than you. And it's nobody on this planet. And if you got that, I remember my husband saying to me, who was in the cancer ward and dying, and all of us were there every night talking to him. And then we, the saddest moment for me was when we all went to dinner. And then I thought, there that man is, that great-looking, handsome guy. And he's 53 years old, and he's dying of cancer. And I said to myself, that must be so lonely. And I went to John and said, is it okay? I just don't feel like going to dinner. I feel like staying with you. He said, don't. I'm fine. And I said, how can you say that? And he said, because in quite simply, Elaine, and he never said this to me as simply as it. He said, I believe in God. So, you know, I get tears in my eyes just talking about it. But wasn't it a wonderful thing to say? It was so uplifting to me. And I went to dinner, had a ball. Because there was something there. He was sure of something. If you have faith, then, then, you, then you're never alone. You got it. And you said the operative word, faith. So unless you think there's something, I don't know what the hell it is, Charles, but something greater than this or bigger than this or more powerful than this, then I think you're in a little serious trouble and I think you ought to work on getting it. Stretch also made guest appearances on television on The Cosby Show, Head of the Class, Law and Order, Oz and Third Rock from the Sun. Well into her 80s, she had a recurring role on the NBC comedy 30 Rock as the domineering mother of the television executive played by Alec Baldwin. But Stritcher's biggest triumph of her career was arguably her one-woman show Elaine Stritch at Liberty, created with the New Yorker critic John Law. Essentially a spoken and sung theatre memoir, the show began performances at the Public Theatre in Manhattan in 2001 when Stretch was 76 and then moved to Broadway where it was a smash. Alone on stage except for a chair, clad only in tights and a white silk shirt, Stretch wove together music including Zip, The Ladies Who Lunch, I'm Still Here, The Little Things You Do Together and Broadway Baby along with showbiz memories into a tour de force that won a Tony Award for Best Special Theatrical Event. And when Elaine Stritch at Liberty was broadcast on HBO in 2004, Stritch added an Emmy to her collection of awards. Let's listen now to Elaine Stritch singing I'm Still Here, Sondheim's tribute to showbiz longevity and survival, as sung during Elaine Stritch at Liberty. Not long ago, I was talking to Stephen Sondheim about his song, I'm Still Here. I told him that I had heard women in their 60s sing, I'm Still Here. 50s, even. And a couple of times in their 40s. I'm still here. Where have they been? <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. And so I told him that, not that he asked me or anything, but I... I told him that I would never touch that song until I was, what, 80 years old. That makes sense to me. 80, I'm still here. But, you know, it is such a great song. I'm not going to wait 20 years to sing it. 
What are you laughing at? <laughs> Good times and bum times. I've seen them all in my dear. I'm still here. Plush velvet sometimes. Sometimes just pretzels and beer. But I'm here. I've stuffed the dailies in my shoes. Strummed ukuleles, sung the blues. Seen all my dreams disappear. But I'm here. I've slept in shanties, guest of the WPA. But I'm here. Danced in my scanties, three bucks a night was the pay. But I'm here. I've stood on red lines with the best. Watched while the headlines did the rest In the depression Was I depressed nowhere near I met a big financier And I'm here I've been through Gandhi Wally and Windsor's affair here Amos and Andy Marjan and platinum hair but I'm here I got through AB's Irish Rose five Dion babies major bowls had heebie-jeebies four BB's bathosphere I lived Brenda Frazier And I'm here I've gotten through Herbert And J. Edgar Hoover Gee That was fun and a half When you've been through Herbert and J. Edgar Hoover Anything else is a laugh I've been through Reno, I've been through Beverly Hills, and I'm here. Reefers and vino, rest cures, religion and pills, but I'm here. Been called a pinko, commie tool, got through its stinkle by my pool. I should have gone to an acting school. That seems clear. <laughs> Still, someone said she's sincere. So I'm here. Black sable one day, next day it goes into hock. But I'm here. Top billing Monday, Tuesday you're touring in stock. But I'm here. First you're another slow-eyed vamp Then someone's mother Then your camp Then you career From career to career 
or better yet, sorry, I thought you were hooses. Whatever happened to her? Good times and bum times, I've seen them all and my dear. I'm still here. Posh velvet sometimes, sometimes just pretzels and beer. But I'm here. I have run the gamut, A to Z. Three cheers and damn it, c'est la vie. I got through all of last year and I'm here. Christ knows, at least I was there. Stritch made her final Broadway appearance in 2010, replacing Angela Lansbury as the aging Madame Armfelt in a Broadway revival of Stephen Sondheim's A Little Night Music, appearing opposite Bernadette Peters. It was a role that allowed her to sing liaisons, an aching pian to love affairs past. As Bruce Weber and Robert Berkvist noted in the New York Times, Stritch brought to liaisons an original and rather stinging bitterness about a life that is nearly over. Stritch also continued her regular appearances at Café Carlisle, still in her trademark white shirt and black tights, this lean, glaring lion of a woman, as Stephen Holden described her in his review for the New York Times. More recently, 2014 saw the release of the acclaimed documentary film Elaine Stritch Shoot Me, a deeply candid, poignant, moving, inspiring, and at times funny here-and-now portrait of the 87-year-old Stritch as she copes with worsening memory loss, fragile health, her struggles with alcoholism and diabetes, and the constant anxiety and realization of her own mortality. I became fascinated by her as a creature, as a subject, and as a performer, noted the film's director, Kiemi Karasawa. There's so much that I never expected to capture, Karasawa noted. I think what people have to say about her is going to be really interesting. Not just as a performer, but this woman is a survivor. She survived a lifetime of career ups and downs. Alcoholism, which she's extremely candid about, the loss of her husband, all of these challenges. She's an incredibly pure spirit. In early 2013, Stritch abandoned her longtime home of New York for Birmingham, Michigan, in order to be close to her family. About a month ago, I really said, I, I'm, I want out of here. I want out of New York. I, don't, I shouldn't live in New York anymore. It's not for me anymore. It's too fast for me, or no, it's not too fast, and I changed my mind about that. It's not this, it's not that. It's just not for me. This is a, this is New York. Taxi, low, and it's dinner, and tonight, yeah. and uh, tomorrow, and... Very full day. And I can't handle it anymore because I'm not interested in handling it. Right. You just don't want... You could do it, you just don't want to do it. It doesn't give me any satisfaction. I don't go home and say, I... Yes, I told them. So about a month ago, it had been an idea, and then a month ago you went, I'm doing it. I called up my nephew, who is 
a great buddy of mine in uh, in Birmingham, Michigan, and I said, I'm coming home. What do you think you're going to do there? Oh, you have no idea. Look, I'm just saying, you, First you, of all, you've had nothing. a very active life. First of all, nothing. I'm really <laughs> going to do nothing. I'm going to wake up and Go say, back to bed. And go back to bed. That's yeah. exactly right. That's what I want to do. I want to do it. I want to sleep a lot. What's wrong with us? I, I would like to wake up and have my oatmeal and read the paper and go right back to go bed. Go right back to bed. Who noon. wouldn't? Yeah, till about noon. So you're going to go there and do nothing. And your family. I like to go to dinner. Mm-hmm. I like to meet my nieces, my nephews, my cousins, my, you know. Your relations there by way of who? Your relations. My to- two sisters. Your two sisters. I had two sisters. We were three sisters. I was the baby. And they. They in had Michigan, all the kids. In, in bedroom Detroit. You were in, like, what, Bloomfield Hills? or Yeah, 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 yeah. What are your two sisters? What kind of lives did they have? No show business? Very, very chic. Very... Uh, normal. Normal. <laughs> Georgine had four kids and Sally had three. Oh, my. So you have seven. Yeah. Pieces. So and there's and seven families. guys running around, and they're all crazy about me. Why shouldn't I go home? No. There's nothing to tie me here. Right. It's not the same. My career tied me here. Right. I talk career. I talk and parts plan. and plays. And plan. And plan. And make plan. What am I doing next? What am yeah, I doing next? that's right. And that's when you right. get off that merry-go-round, it, it gets, you get a different what a perspective. Stop. Oh. What a stop it is. The merry-go-round broke down. What, why do you say that? You could keep working. You could Absolutely. Keep working. Yeah. But, but, but you, you don't want to. No, I don't want to find parts and look for them. And, and, and I said the other night, when is pretend going to end? Right. Slowly but surely, Alex, is. I'm starting to say, I don't want to pretend anymore. Yeah. I want to get up in the morning and I want it to be real. Stretched there in an interview with Alec Baldwin, recorded in 2013 for WNYC Public Radio. In 2014, Stretch underwent surgery for stomach cancer, a diagnosis she never publicly revealed. She passed away on July 17, 2014 at the age of 89 and was laid to rest at a small service in Chicago alongside her husband, the actor John Bay. Stretch used to say how she was frightened by death. She didn't want to be alone, Kawasawa stated. She didn't want there to be nothing but she was at peace when her time came. During one of their final meetings, Karasawa leaned over and told Stretch how much she would miss her. I miss me too, Stretch responded. It was her way, Kawasawa noted, of saying goodbye. How do you want to be remembered? How? Whatever you think's fair. most important thing to me is that I am. And I don't know, it's all going to be, it's all going to be such a revelation. I mean, I look at death as a, my God, what an experience, what an adventure it's going to be. And if it's nothing, (laughs) are you kidding? There'll be no more interviews about nothing. 
And I, it's, a, it's a line in Richard Rogers' song. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's a great, that's a great explanation of an afterlife that I've ever heard in my life. Because if it is nothing, it's nothing. I don't think so, though. I don't think so. Too many people getting a raw deal. You know, we got to even the score here someplace. Somebody has got to do, to, to, somebody has got to play fair with us in the end. Elaine Stritch there in a 2008 interview for the New York Times. Elaine Stritch was an unapologetic mass of contradictions. As fearless as she was fragile, as ferocious as she was vulnerable. On stage, she was all prowess. Off stage, she was all panic. A Molotov cocktail of madness, sanity and genius was how one longtime friend described her. Despite her success in film and television, the stage remained Stritch's true professional home. Audiences were drawn to her being there done that manner, her blunt charisma, her take-no-prisoners candor. For Stritch, the theatre provided the kind of love she needed the most and couldn't get any other way. She was at once addicted to, yet terrified of, performing. It's lovely. God, it's lovely. Success is lovely. It's so hard, and it's such hard work, but it's so gratifying. What's the hardest thing about it for you? What's been the hardest thing? Do you find it hard just to have the that fear, much focus on the it? fear. The fear of what? That you won't be able to perform? The fear that I'm just going to forget, and I'm going to not not so much forget, but it's the fear. It's the fear. And that was when I was not drinking at all, and I didn't drink anything to get my talent out. But all my life, I had. Why have you lasted all this time? And because you're talented. Certainly it isn't because people think you're uh, an easy time of it. Because I have to accomplish something in that department almost every day of my life. I have to. So you've never stopped trying to prove yourself. Uh, 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 uh. That's the key, isn't it? No. i got to go and do that part in that soap, in that schmope. I don't care what it right. is. you got to give you it know, everything or you have. I, or I'm with Noel Coward on uh, the West End, or I'm with Hal Prince on Broadway. I'm with all the big, 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 big shots, and they're directing me well and guiding me well, and I'm... I'm you want to prove you belong there with them. Yes, and I'm being directed in the way of the big shots and I'm doing fine I'm doing fine I'm I'm uh, I'm doing fine Elaine Stritch there in that 2013 interview conducted by Alec Baldwin for WNYC Radio New York Stritch freely admitted that hers was a technically imperfect singing voice a critic once described it as corn cake wading through bourbon on the rocks She transcended the limitations of her instrument, however, because she understood that a song can be a one-act play in musical form. As John La points out, Stritch knew better than anyone around how to work an audience, how to tell a story, and how to sell a song. There were a lot of lyrics that I sang but didn't understand, Stritch once confessed to Mark Lawson of The Guardian. 
but I had this facade and performance of looking like I wrote the book. Elaine Stritch's passing, as John La noted, marked the end of an era, the end of an old-school, succeed-or-die, knock-em-dead Broadway showbiz. She was, and always will be, as Nathan Lane called her, the first broad of the American theatre. Well, that's it for this edition of Great Interpreters Goes Broadway. But you can join me again next Friday at 8pm here on Fine Music Radio for a look at the life and career of stage and screen legend Angela Lansbury. A reminder too that you can listen again to tonight's broadcast from my website on and off the record www.onandofftherecord.com That's www.onandofftherecord.com And if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via email at adrian at onandofftherecord.com To end tonight's program, Elaine Stretch singing Something Good from the Sound of Music as recorded during her one-woman show Elaine Stretch at Liberty in 2002. From me, Adrian Fuchs, have a wonderful weekend. Good night. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. Somewhere in my wicked, miserable past There must have been a moment of truth For here you are, there you are, loving Whether or not you should So somewhere in my youth Or childhood I must have done something Nothing comes from nothing Nothing ever could So somewhere in my youth Or childhood I must have done Something Good Good night and thank you all so very much <laughs>